Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I've been waiting for this one for a long time. I'm here with Kim Kelly, who is an independent journalist, author, and organizer. She's been a regular labor columnist for Teen Vogue since 2018. Um, a third generation union member. She's a member of the Industrial Workers of the World's Freelance Journalists Union, as well as a member and elected council person for the Writers Guild of America East. Her book is called Fight Like Hell. Welcome, Kim. Hi, Marys. Thanks so much for having me on. Excited to talk uh, to you. Me too. I, I want to, I need to make sure we cover this. So I'm going to go with this first. 20 years ago, I was an assistant at Simon & Schuster, at one of the imprints there that is no longer active, but your book was also published by an imprint there. And I would complain about work with the other assistants and we'd say like, huh, I, I wonder why we don't get overtime <laughs> or like, why, why are the hours so brutal? And we kind of just thought, well, we have our dream jobs. That that's that's why. And you. when when someone suggested that perhaps we unionize, we all laughed. We yeah. laughed. And now, twenty years later, Kim, I feel like we're getting closer. I think you would have a much different reaction, especially if you talk to some of the younger folks who are involved, who are kind of just not even just dipping their feet in, but kind of paddling around in the kiddie pool where they should be diving in the deep end. But it seems like there's so many structural and systemic barriers to allowing people to get where they need to go. Like this is this is baby's first book. This is baby's first, you know, toe dip into the world of publishing. But even just the what I've learned from the folks that I've gotten to talk to and work with and from their friends and just kind of getting a little bit more of a read on what the working conditions are like within publishing. What I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but wow, things are fucked up. <laughs> like there's a I think there's a couple, I think HarperCollins has been unionized for like 30 years or something, but that's one out of a whole lot. Well, maybe not that many anymore, but yeah. a lot of publishers like it's been interesting. Like I just wrote about it for Teen Vogue because I was yeah. thinking about all this book stuff because I did a book and got to know some book people. And it's just kind of wild how kind of the same idea that I think a lot of workers in these so-called creative industries, white collar, whatever little bow tie you want to throw on it, mm -hmm. are told like, oh, well, this is your dream job. Like this is, you're lucky to work here. Like we have snacks in the kitchen. Like maybe you'll see someone <laughs> fancy in the office. Like it takes me back to working at Vice when people were making 30 grand a year, but sometimes Action Bron Bronson would show up and disrupt your work day. <laughs> and he had snacks. <laughs> yeah, they, it was mostly granola bars. Yeah. <laughs> not even the good ones. Doing this for granola bars. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. I love the idea as, as we are all baby stepping towards figuring out how to organize that you wrote this book that gives us the, the background that that we might need um tell me i i can imagine that like 
that so many of the topics you've chosen are big and complicated and linked to other things. And I'm wondering how you narrowed it down. It was so hard. And I, I definitely, they, they told me like, yeah, write us about 70 to 80,000 words. And I was like, okay, here's 120,000. And they were like, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that I could have gone even harder, but I had, I was eventually reined in a little bit, but when it came down to picking out who I was going to include, what topics and what subject areas to dive into, it was a little, um, <laughs> I don't want to say chaotic. It, it made sense in my head, but I didn't follow any kind of specific framework outside of like, I want to write about workers whose stories are not super available in the mainstream, who have been pushed to the margins, who don't fit into this avatar that we've been fed for like my whole lifetime of the the working class being a white guy in a hard hat like mm -hmm. the guys that raised me like shout out to them but they've never been the entire story and when I was trying to format my chapters and the outline and all that I found myself drawn even though I'm a writer like I found myself drawn to what people might call like blue collar or like physical or heavy labor kind of occupations like jobs in which people kind of depend on their bodies first and foremost as well as their minds so there's you know chapters about agricultural work and sex work and uh, mining and cleaning, like all of the, just a, a lot of the dirty work you would say, mm -hmm. not in that it's you know, in any way less ethical or valuable or important, just it's dirtier, like you gotta do more shit. That's a little <laughs> bit tougher in a physical sense than working in an office. And there's been, I also know my limits and I know what I, I know what I know and I know what I don't know. And there are a lot of really brilliant authors and historians and scholars who have written, especially about the, the idea of white collar work, like education right. and healthcare, like these big topics. And I was like, I've barely touched on those. I'm, I'm just going to stay in my lane and not write about that stuff because there's other books about that that are probably way better than what I could pull off. <laughs> so I stuck with what I knew and what spoke to me the most. And I guess, especially since I'm from a blue collar family, like my family works construction, they're steel workers, like working kitchens. That's what, that was my first idea of work what, what work was. And I guess in my little lizard brain, that's kind of what I always return to, even though I make my meager living typing words on the computer. <laughs> I'm going to have to talk to you about that too soon. Um, but in terms of your subjects, I'm wondering what kind of things you'd like people to learn about them, emulate them, understand their tactics, because I, I do feel like there's this new, really exciting, people are unionizing left and right. Chris Smalls is a celebrity now. Oh my God, the fact that like the most recognizable union leader in the country right now is a handsome working class black man with like, tattoos and like earrings and gold chains, like that is the best thing we could have possibly <laughs> hoped for. And as a you know, tattooed Jersey, now I'm a dirtbag. He's certainly not. Like it gives me a little bit of hope. Like okay, people like me do fit in this movement. <laughs> but um, in terms of the book, like I was always trying to find stories of people that even if they hadn't won, they'd given it. They they had tried. They had struggled. They had you know even if they hadn't succeeded in their immediate goal, they'd laid groundwork that other people were then able to build on, and you know set out lessons that were either good or bad. Like it's it's all part of this really long chain. Like the same, a lot of the same issues that uh, the so-called mill girls, young Yankee women who worked, women and girls who worked in the, 
the garment factories in New England in the 1800s who walked out on America's first factory strike 19 or 1834, shout out to Paul Tuckett, they're dealing with a lot of the same stuff that garment workers in Los Angeles who are now predominantly Asian and Latino immigrants are dealing with. Like they're breathing in the same dust. They're being treated the same way. Like history doesn't necessarily repeat, but it definitely rhymes. Mm-hmm. And in terms of lessons that I hope people take, there's a couple overarching themes in the book, but the most important one, and it's going to sound like a, like a bumper sticker, but you know, sometimes bu- bumper stickers make good points. Lay it on me. Um, that solidarity is our greatest weapon. And really finding ways to find common ground and relate to people across whatever divides may exist, whether they're manufactured or actual. Like one of my favorite examples that I like to talk about especially kind of with the Amazon uh, Union victory in Staten Island in mind, is this 1946 strike in Hawaii, the great sugar strike, mm-hmm. that without like, without getting, without spoiling it, um, that was the instance <laughs> in which, you know, yeah, 1946, too soon. But there's an instance in which there were uh, these massive sugarcane plantations that made a whole lot of money for a lot of white dudes that lived in the mainland and were worked by predominantly native Hawaiian and Asian immigrants who were treated like garbage and who were separated. They're divided by you know, ethnicity, by, by language. The bosses intentionally kept them apart so they wouldn't organize. And so when it came time to strike, their union, the International Longshore and Warehouse Workers Union, so a very cool militant history, they realized like, okay, we, we can't let them divide us. We have to figure out how to make everyone feel like this is a shared struggle. And the way they did that was by bringing translators and making sure everybody in every meeting knew what was going on and felt heard. They built up strike kitchens where the different types of workers cooked for one another and shared culture. They made it feel like everyone was in it together. They built that solidarity in a very real way and they won. And that's kind of a similar tactic to what we saw in, in, in the parking lots in Staten Island where the Amazon Labor Union held barbecues and had multi, uh, multilingual translators and multilingual workers just super involved in the organizing. Like, it's, it seems so simple, but it's very, very useful to show people like, oh, I understand where you're coming from. I care about you. We're in, the, the same, we're in this together. I don't want to get, I don't want to win without you. And that's how all of the progress is made. Like that's the, that's the biggest thing. Don't let the boss divide us because that's just doing the work, his work for him. Yeah. And that's tried and true tactic. <laughs> yeah. They love that. They love it. They do it. You see that even with like, this silly discourse from well-paid Twitter pundits who are like, well, grad students aren't workers or, you know, these journalists who they think they are. And it's like, well, <laughs> you don't know anybody with a real job. That's what your problem is. <laughs> <laughs> um, and tell me a little bit, because you are a journalist and you've covered so many issues in the present day. Tell me about how you kind of weave together the the past that you're writing about and the the present that you're writing articles about yeah that's that's kind of been my whole focus since i started writing about labor like six or so years ago because i'm a big nerd and i've always been interested in the history and it always made so much sense to me to pull the two together because everything that is happening now has a precedent or is building on something that happened before so i always tried to do that in my teen bowl columns and that was kind of my guiding uh, I don't know the right word for it, my guiding light when I was trying to put this book together, because everything does have a precedent. Even the most like originally unique campaign you can think of, like Amazon Labor Union again, they're doing what Dorothy Lee Bolden was doing in the 60s or what Ben Fletcher was doing in the 1910s in Philly on the, on the waterfront. Like everything, it, it's, it's part of the unbroken chain. And it was fun 
like really fun in this book to to be able to structure where every chapter starts with something older and then there's something kind of in the middle and then something current to just show like look how this is all connected mm -hmm. uh, the chapter on coal mining well mining in general was one of the most interesting to piece together because I, I, I squeeze a lot of stuff in there. But there's these, like, for example, one thing that really stood out to me and still stands out to me about this current struggle in Alabama I've been covering for the past year mm -hmm. um, with a, a thousand members of the United Mine Works of America have been out on strike since April 1st last year. And I've gotten very close with the women of the auxiliary. They're the ones kind of keeping this whole thing going. And in 1983 in Arizona, the great copper strike, there's a very similar situation happening. Uh, the miners in that point and in that situation are predominantly Mexican, Mexican, American, and indigenous, and their wives who are part of the auxiliary at first weren't very public. They're kind of stayed at home. There's a very traditional patriarchal social structure in place there. But as the strike went on, those women not only were running the strike kitchens, they're on the picket lines. Like they right. were picking fights with cops. They were <laughs> traveling the country talking about what's happening. And this is, you know, 20, 30, what year is it? I don't know, a minute later. <laughs> the women, the women, I, I failed out of college because of math. It's still not a strong point. But <laughs> the women in Brooklyn have kind of followed a very similar trajectory where women who in the beginning of the strike mostly were stay-at-home parents uh, were kind of, you know, in a little bit more traditional conservative whatever family structure. Now, some of them not only have shifted politically and turned into full-blown socialists, some of them are like travel, uh, traveling around and speaking and doing press and mm. making it clear who's keeping the strike going. And seeing things like that is just so satisfying because it's like everything, like the same people have been fighting the hardest for the longest are still doing it. Like we still haven't given up, even if the rest of society or whatever, you know, pick your, your type of oppression has tried to get in our way. Like we're still doing the same stuff. And in a way that's really inspiring. Yeah, and and I think of course COVID really um, changed the framing on uh, on what is work and who is essential and um, what is required of essential workers. Can you talk like, about that a little bit? I think it totally uh, like ushered in a shift in the way that, like you said, workers view the value of their labor and their lives. Yeah. I mean, we had what, a couple months where we had the essential worker discourse where people who had always been doing important, vital work were finally recognized, maybe got a little bit of a pay bump. In New York, you guys are hitting pans for a minute. And then that all disappeared and those people still had to go to work. Like that felt really personal to me because my partner, like <laughs> in the beginning of the pandemic, he's working at a farm and then he's working at a grocery store kind of in the height of it. And I was so worried for him, but he, that was, that was the job that he was doing at the time. And it was very like, okay, so you're essential, but you can't even sign up for a vaccine yet. Like you're in some weird group, like, like, oh my God, this is, this is not sustainable. And so many other families in this country are in that same bind. And I think one thing that has sort of helped uh, that there's a, the idea of the great resignation, this big shift, the tight labor market, all of this stuff that labor economists know way more about than I do. I think one thing that was a little bit of a spark there is the fact that for again for like five seconds the government did something helpful and sent people some money so people had a minute to like sit and think for a second okay maybe i can leave this horrible customer service job where people are breathing on me all day and find something new maybe i can pay off a little something and take a little break like the tiniest bit of wiggle room i think has a really big impact especially for folks that are living paycheck to paycheck like so many of the essential workers in this country are 
And I think the idea that the, the idea of essential work, even if I don't want to say the media, even if um, it fell out of the, the mainstream discourse or whatever, the people that heard that, that were told that didn't forget about that. And they saw who kept this country running and who kept, you know, groceries funneling to to the TV pundits who stopped talking about them and who like ferried them from, you know, appointment to appointment. Like, I think uh, it's this this society is not set up in a way that makes workers feel valued for their contributions. And even just a slight shift in that has proved to be pretty monumental. And yeah. I, mean, I don't think we would be in this current upswing in like organizing activity if folks had not had to, you know, scrape and barely survive this pandemic while a bunch of rich people made more money. Yeah. And it's hard not to think about healthcare in 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 the morass of all of this. Imagine um, what we could do if we had healthcare. Imagine how much less time unions would have to spend on this shit. Imagine what kind of jobs people could have. Like it would be imagine how much more free our lives would be. I was thinking about that before I talked to you. I was like, I'm gonna tweet about this. Like if all of our, your basic needs needs were met, housing, healthcare, food, what would you do? And I think I would still do what I'm doing now, but I'd be a lot less stressed out about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Kim, I'm that that's a good segue because for the first time ever, once I married my husband Josh, um, I got his union benefits and was that's able so to freelance and was able to podcast and, and do all of this stuff. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, one of my favorite unions now that still has its uh, difficulties, let's say, the WGA. <laughs> yeah, I've been, I've been a member of the WGA since the Writers Guild of America East since, um, I think 2016 is when we ratified our contract. So it's been a minute and I've been, this is my third term as a council member, which is always so funny to me that I'm an elected union official. Like, <laughs> it's just very silly because not only am I uh, just a ridiculous character I do not look like an elected anything but being part of the council has been really interesting over the past what god five six years just seeing a little bit of how the sausage is made and seeing there's this very real phenomenon that's not just in the writer's guild I think I've seen I've seen it playing out in the most unions that I've encountered most unions where I have people that work especially who are younger and more progressive, they told me about this sort of growing divide that exists, and again, I'm speaking broadly, but exists between, um, there's kind of an older, more established set of union leaders out there. And then there are younger, more, usually more progressive folks coming in and kind of, you know, that's the, the circle of life, that's how it goes. And I'm sure that the current old guard, they were the young fire-breathing progressives back in the day. I mean, Richard Trumka, the, uh, you know, the, the former, the, the late president of the AFL-CIO, by the time of his, you know, his death, he had been criticized for not being progressive enough. But when he first and like showed up there, he was like this firebrand United Mine Workers organizer who was like talking shit about cops. Like he led a bunch of strikes. Like it's interesting seeing the way people's priorities and political leanings and understandings of the movement shift as they spend more time in it. And um yeah, I hope I'm always going to be like the annoying radical in the room, but I'm sure there's some 16 year old who's like waiting to get their first job at Starbucks watching this wave who's going to think I'm some outdated. Like, oh, I hope grandma. so. Like, I want us all to be replaced, but it's, yeah, there, there's a lot of interesting tensions and it's been uh, a very specific kind of education learning about how 
to bridge those gaps and try and move people with different views in a way that benefits the greater good instead of sticking to to specific personal outlooks or philosophies because sometimes you're not gonna win you're not gonna get Mm -hmm. the most radical thing that you want that's happens to radicals most of the time (laughs) but sometimes you do or sometimes you get close and it's always worth trying and it's always worth listening to people that have different perspectives because sometimes they know more than you do or or sometimes you just need to listen anyway because that's how you get shit done yeah and and I I love how you talk about the wobblies in the book that there is this ideological part to to all of this that it's a political movement yeah and that and that free speech used to mean it used to be you ours. Pull out a soapbox <laughs> and stand up on it and talk about job conditions, which it's wild. Like that was man, that's one thing about studying history, even just as like some guy, not a historian, like it's wild seeing how much things have changed. Like I wrote about it for Teen Vogue, how the idea of free speech, that was a very radical lefty position. The idea that you could literally like stand on a box on a street corner and talk about unions and rail against capitalism. And now it's turned into Lord knows whatever it is now. <laughs> but um and the IWW, I love writing about them and talking about them because it's there's this weird instinct uh in within the more traditional labor movement to kind of dismiss the IWW or leave them out of the equation, leave them out of the conversation, act as though they're some sort of fusty historical relic. But they're not. They're wobblies all over the place, like organizing and notching victories and doing really cool stuff. Like I have a red card. <laughs> and that union has always been like not uh like very uh, openly publicly anti-capitalist and always welcomed every kind of worker way before the mainstream unions desegregated or allowed women like they they have been making points since 1905 and i think it is a good slogan (laughs) yo honestly like and it's yeah they're, they're one of my faves and i just love I love seeing that because the way I grew up, I grew up in a union family, but the idea of a union as some sort of political movement or political entity never really came up because my dad, my uncles, my granddad, they all work construction and the building trades and they're in unions their whole lives because that's what you do because it's a heavily unionized industry. But they were not interested in any idea of, you know, working class liberation, anti-capitalism. My dad still like thinks Ronald Reagan was great and like buries gold in the backyard. Like he has, we have very different political outlooks, but he's a union man. And he, you know, taught me that the union, it's important to have a union that has your back. And like, it's, it's, it's interesting seeing that tension because unions are very much a political thing, but for a lot of people, they're just part of the job. And I don't know if there's, you know, a value that one can place on that, whether one is better or not. But I just hope we get to a point where unions are common enough, where people don't have to think about them that much if they don't want to. Right. They're just there. Yeah, they're just there. Tell me a little bit, because we, we talked about this a little bit when I saw you in person a little while ago, about the disabled workers chapter, because I think you had just gone to Coney Island. Oh, man, that's, and of course, this is me being like, a weird self-taught little freak. So I was like, oh, I'm going to put the sideshow in my labor book. But it totally makes sense. Oh, because, sure it does. <laughs> because this is like it, the disabled workers chapter means a lot to me because not only am I like a disabled person in the labor movement, I didn't know very much about those intersections going in. And so I learned a ton. 
and I mentioned the sideshow because one of the central tensions of that chapter and that like the intersectional movement in general is that not only had disabled workers had to fight for you know like decent wages and job protections all the stuff that people that aren't disabled have to deal with working on the job but disabled workers had to fight just to get in the door in the first place like we weren't allowed to have jobs like for a really long time the sideshow for a long time that was the only way that disabled people and disabled people that had like specific types of disabilities that were like interesting or exotic or some people thought were like gross or horrifying you know a whole other kettle of fish but that was like the only option that people had if they didn't want to stay home with their family if they even had a family or they didn't want to be locked up in some kind of carceral institution like an asylum and it's i think it's important to remember that too because disabled work disabled workers like there's still so many barriers facing disabled folks whether it's just sheer accessibility or the sub-minimum wage like there's so many different ways that the disability rights movement and the labor movement intersect and need to intersect and that that conversation needs to be held in tandem because the one thing that that i also want to hammer home is that like some people show up to the job disabled they show up like me and mm. others walk home that way you know my granddad died from, he was he's not someone that I, you would consider disabled but he died of meso mesothelioma white lung which is an aggressive lung cancer that he got after working in a steel mill for 40 years and breathing in asbestos. Like there's this phrase within the disability justice movement that I really like, uh, temporarily abled. We are all temporarily abled. And eventually your turn's gonna come and you are also gonna join the largest minority, minority in the US. So it's- oh, It's really the only one that- <laughs> Yeah, you always have a chance. Yeah, yeah, right. Like we're always welcoming new applicants. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and so, Kim, maybe to wrap up, I I love the idea that activism in other areas directly corresponds to labor organizing. Like I I, I know right now, people who are listening to this are probably going to go protest for bodily autonomy. Say. <laughs> So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's the thing. Throughout history, every movement for justice or progress or liberation has intersected with the labor movement because almost everybody has had a job, whether has had a job, will have a job, or is currently on their way to their job. Like labor work is one of the, the few almost universal experiences. So it makes total sense that like during the civil rights movement, uh, people like Baird Rustin, the queer black man who orchestrated the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, but kind of got pushed into the shadows because he was out like an out and proud gay man. Like he had deep roots in the labor movement. He was buddies with A. Philip Randolph, who founded the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, an incredibly influential early like black led union. Like Dorothy Lee Bolden, who was like next door neighbors with Martin Luther King Jr. and they were pals, he encouraged her to start organizing when she was you know, upset about the conditions she faced as a domestic worker. She organized the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Like, like Reverend Addie L. Wyatt, like she was like a very important organizer and union official in her space and also a civil rights icon and also like very involved in the religious community. Like everything overlaps, like even talking about the disability rights struggle again there's like this specific moment that sums up so much like the section 504 protests in the 70s i think it was the 70s uh when a group of disabled activists occupied a bunch of federal buildings across the country 
most splashily in San Francisco, where they held on for 26 days, they were able to do that because the Black Panthers showed up and fed them because one of those disabled activists, Brad Lomax, and uh, his caregiver were Black Panthers. Like when the some of those strike leaders went, or uh, occupation leaders went to DC to talk to Congress, the, the International Machinist Union showed up and they offered resources and they got them a truck to transport the activists around DC because there wasn't any accessible transport. There were folks using wheelchairs, mobility aids. This union showed up with like a box truck and some rope and was like, all right, let's get her done. <laughs> <laughs> it's everything everything is connected and the more we understand that and the more we embrace that the better we're all off we're all gonna be it's only a kick a jump a block it's only a serve it's only a tackle a run it's only for the fans after all it's only pressure you got this Adidas. Oh, Kim, thank you. Before we go, would you like to recommend something to read? I'm reading a book right now that I'm obsessed with. I love, it's very funny for someone who is like a labor reporter, anti-capitalist, whatever. I love reading about the Gilded Age and like society and scandals from the like the early 20th century. So right now I'm reading a book by Debbie Applegate called Madam, the biography of Polly Adler, icon of the jazz age, who was just this, oh, she was so cool and sleazy and smart. She was like a Belarusian Jewish immigrant that moved to New York when she was 13 and built up this empire of, um, let's see, I don't know, of brothels. And she was very, she was in deep with the mob. She, she did all of these things that were so interesting to read about ethically probably more complicated than I want to think about when I'm having a fun little read about the Gilded Age but yeah I even that's how much a nerd even when I'm like you know putting my journalist hat up and and not thinking about my book anymore I'm like let's read about some 20th century history with complicated (laughs) intersectional lens lenses (laughs) robber barons and uh yeah yeah know thy enemy right know thy enemy Well, Kim, thank you so much. The book again is called Fight Like Hell. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.